Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about the inflation data we get this week and how he expects the Fed to react. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here, Sarah. Great to be here with you as well. So this is inflation week. Let's talk about what you're looking at, what the CPI data is going to say. What are you expecting? Well, one of the things that came out on Friday is the producer price index data, and it was a, a, a little bit hotter than anticipated, and bond yields had gone up initially, came back a little bit, but were uh, trending higher. But when you look at the internals of uh, inflationary data, uh, it, the growth rate's falling, right? And, tr- and traditionally, unless some really big thing happens in the economy, the trend is lower. Uh, In this case, the producer price index, the uh, unprocessed good inflationary data has already collapsed. The headline inflationary data from, uh, you know, taking food and energy is is already falling. The core inflationary data is falling as well. But when we talk about CPI uh, week, you know, it's it's a really big day on Twitter. And even for myself, I I do kind of long Twitter threads. the game is over in that sense to where uh, we are actually looking at core inflation being elevated uh, by its biggest driver. And uh, it's just the growth rate is already falling in this data line uh, on real time data. And one of the things, you know, uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen even talked about, we, we do understand that there is a really big lag on CPI data. And without core inflation uh, being pushed up by, by shelter inflation, it's extremely hard for this data line to sustain itself. So what do you think the Fed is going to take away from this? When they're looking at, at what's coming out this week, what do you think they're going to say? Hopefully the Fed realizes the same talking point that I've been saying here on this podcast for some time. We are in a different place today than we were 12 months ago. Right. We're going to have this conversation like for the next 12 months here. Um, the growth rate of inflation is falling. You do not need to be old and slow anymore. Right. You can actually just say, OK, listen, we're going to slow the rate hikes down to get to our neutral rate. And then that's it. The game is over. Right. The, the, the Fed rate hikes. There's no six or seven percent. Uh, Fed funds rate. There's not. There's nothing here that could change the dynamics from the economic standpoint. The savings rate that the Federal Reserve always says, "Well, there's so much excess savings that's making our jobs harder." Boo hoo, big crybabies. <laughs> Jesus, come on. You you do a job that, in a sense, you can't get fired from unless you illegally do some stock trades. Okay, so boo hoo. Um, the excess savings is still roughly still over a trillion dollars. That slowly is winding itself down. So we are just going to be in a different place 12 months from now because, you know, one of the reasons why shelter or why CPI was very tame from the year 2000 to 2019 is uh, shelter inflation, rents inflation was not escalating out of control, right? It is jobs, wages, you know, it, things, supply, those things that drive that. 
the global pandemic, like when we see the history of global pandemics, especially with shelter inflation, you see this delay, you know, in the impact of shelter inflation is really rising. Uh, just like, you know, uh, in, in the previous pandemic here in America. Uh, and then there's this delay of kind of inflationary data falling. It, it, we see it already because we, we have so much uh, faster data lines now than, let's say, what happened in 1918 to 1920. But uh, the secondary impact is that uh, job growth is slowing, right? Uh, a big part of my work is we're going to have high job openings. We're going to get all the jobs back by September. But Traditionally speaking, we are an older country. Population growth is slowing, so we can't really have big job prints uh, uh, anymore in that sense, like if we were a younger country. So that should be slowing down. And then the big tamale, rental supplies coming onto the market, right? We have near 1 million rental units coming online next year. Just the traditional construction online you could have more units on the secondary impact coming online too. So we have everything in spot for a sophisticated, educated, well-read man or woman to look at the data and go, we'll be in a different spot 12 months from now. So you can try to move yourself back to a dual Fed mandate. Remember, the only people that are pushing for rate hikes who want to see the U.S. go into the recession are anti-central bank people, gold bugs, and very old men from Wall Street who are cryptic and they're oh, doom and gloom. Everything's there. We are going to evolve from this evolution from a, from a dying crypt of people who just have made their careers off of selling doom and gloom. So hopefully that we transition our way because another talking point we've had here is that the Fed has to talk tough. Financial conditions have to be tighter. Um, and we we do what we can to keep the expansion going, right? Uh, we do what we can to try to destroy as many American bears here as possible. But again, all six of my recession red flags are up. Jobless claims, headline jobless claims fell. Continuing claims, which means basically people that have basically filed for unemployment claims, they haven't found a job within a week. That's starting to rise, right? So the, uh, we're basically back to kind of 2019 levels. I remember 2019 levels, we're working from the longest economic and job expansion ever in history. So there's different dynamics that will make 2023, and I can't, it's just another crazy year we're going to have um, uh, than what we dealt with 12 months ago last where we didn't have any rate hikes in the system. The growth rate inflation was still going insane. A lot of that is changing. And the PPI data, I encourage people to look at the internals of the data line. It's already falling. That ship has already sailed. So let's let's see if we can guide our way and keep this expansion going. You know, historically, I've always said it's, it's extremely rare, which means never. It's never happened where we haven't had a recession after the six recession red flags. But we are working with a dynamic of a global pandemic that has created a lot of crazy data lines. Uh, positive and negative, and they will eventually return back to a normal flow, right? Because nothing has really systematically changed in the world. Um, you know, population growth isn't booming in some of these mature countries or, you know, uh, so we should get back to somewhat normal. And in, in that bullwhip effect of getting back to normal, you could have really negative data and then just basically get back to a, a, a normal median, and then we'll be okay. And I think that's that's one of the things 
that I talked about in 2020, how high velocity data is going to be really challenging for people to read. So they need to make adjustments, right? Where things were really booming and then they really are collapsing. But if they return back to normal, what do people do? How do they interpret that data? So we're hopefully in that stage to where we're getting to a normal phase and then it'll, it'll be much easier for people to understand what's going on out there. You know, we, uh, we just published recently um, a story and it was on the Bank of America. Um, they did an insight, homebuyer insights report for 2022. And what struck me was that 70% of the 84.7 million homeowners in the U.S. are Gen X or baby boomers. Um, that's so 70% of the homeowners are, are them. And among this group, 60% of Gen Xers and 76% of baby boomers said they plan to retire in the home they already own. So not just like, Oh, I want to age in place, but like the home that I'm currently sitting in at this moment, that's where I want to stay, which, you know, has great, you know, implications for reverse mortgages and some other products, but from an inventory standpoint, kind of a nightmare. This, and for those of you who've known me for a long time, this has been a big talking point of mine for six, seven years. From 1985 to 2007, people were living in their homes for five to seven years, right? And then from 2008 to 2022, it's gone to 11 to 13 years. Everybody has different data on this, but the trend is for, I mean, I'm living in my house. I'm going into year 19, right? I don't plan on moving, right? The, the, the dynamics have changed. Also, the credit channels have changed. And this gets into a very complicated topic that I've always had a hard time trying to talk with economists on. The financial credit bubble facilitated people moving that they wouldn't have back in 1996 to 2005. You don't have that anymore. What you do have now, which we didn't have in the previous expansion, is that we had a a lot more selling equity for people that wanted to sell and they have a lot of excess uh, cash to put into their next house. So the housing inflation data isn't as bad for them. You know, total net wealth is falling in this country because, you know, home prices are declining from the peak and the stock market is down. So one of the things that the Federal Reserve likes to see is this because they never talk about this in this way. And I don't think I don't think anybody has. But uh, think about it in this light with less nested equity, you have less seller equity, which means less inflationary, right? The inflation, the velocity of money. If you sell your house and you have $700,000 to put on your next home, that the velocity of money is big there. If you sell your house and you only have 70,000, it's different. So uh, part of the Federal Reserve wants to see the wealth destruction to make inflationary less. And in, in the transmission on housing, um, even though this never gets talked about, that's actually a a, a legitimate thing. Um, we don't ever think about it this way because nobody talks about it that way. But selling equity is actually an important uh, uh, inflationary dynamic for those that, hey, guess what? Home prices have gone up for like 10 years. And uh, people that have lived in their homes longer and longer, like we just talked about, boy, they got they got the goods, right? And especially if they move, those local people can't compete with them, right? Right? Too much money chasing too few homes, but that, that buying power is legit. Um, so I think the Federal Reserve is happy to see the wealth destruction from the peak. Uh, hopefully, they believe that'll calm things down. 
uh, on the inflationary side as well. But again, the, the people living in their homes longer and longer, and we are a society that is designed marketing materials on how to make your house so beautiful, right? Rehab this, fix that, get that. And, 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 and you just don't get up and leave with something like that happening. And the inventory channels have been falling since 2012. Every inventory spike theory that I've always heard of in the last 10 years doesn't really hold true to what happened from 2006 to 2011. And that's why today we sit here with not that far away from Christmas and we were told about, well, there's so many investors coming in the market. They're all going to sell or Americans are going to rush to sell out. This is why I tactically chose that talking point last year that you're going to hear this. They're going to. And, and listen, th- this was like based on like 4% mortgage rates or 5% mortgage rates that everyone rushing to the market. We had seven. And what happened is that once rates got to a certain level, new listings data declined. The exact opposite happened. Why? Because homeowners are in a better spot. They're more educated than you. By the way, I'm talking to all the people who literally were telling me that we're going to have four or five million listings come to the market. They're doing better than you financially. That's what you don't get. Okay. They're just living their lives. That's all they've been doing. That's what the data has shown for many, many years, right? The people that said there's 700% foreclosure increases. No, there isn't, right? It's a tiny percentage increase from the bottom, right? We're going to get back to pre-COVID trends. But people who are living in their homes, as long as they're employed, they're good. And this is the, I mean, this is the main talking point we should have in general housing economics and in general economics stance. People still live in a world that they are looking at credit channels from 1996 to 2010 without adjusting the two magnificent laws that were put into place to structurally fix the consumer uh, spending and balance sheets. And to this day, I'm literally the only person that I know that talks about those two talking points always. And we sit here with the longest economic and job expansion ever recorded in history before COVID hit us. It took a global pandemic to break. We're sitting here with massive inflation, massive rates, and yet the consumer balance sheet looks as good. This is where I agree with the Federal Reserve. We we did it the right way because we didn't ease lending standards. And that's been my thing, my talking point for like since 2010. Lending standards are still liberal, but they're sane. So don't ease lending standards ever. We do not want consumer debt products to be exotic or set. We want them as boring, vanilla, oak tree, historian book, long beards, sitting in the dungeon, reading stuff with a candlelight. That's what we want. <laughs> That's what we want. I did want to bring up two points of that study that really underscore what you're saying, which is more than 60% of Gen X homeowners and almost 70% of baby boomer homeowners have renovated or remodeled the homes they live in now. So they've, it's not that, oh, I put that money in and I want to get it out. They remodeled their homes and they like them. They, they want to stay there. And, you know, yes, they could, they could uh, sell them for more now, but where are they going to go? So one of the factors that people cited on why they want to stay is because um, their homes safeguard them against current market conditions. And that's because a large majority of of the people that they surveyed, they either don't have a mortgage or they have mortgages that are under 5%. So, you know, the mortgage rate lockdown theory, at least for older Americans, we might be seeing a little bit of that. You know, when I talked at the AIM event in Las Vegas, 
and I showed the data lines and I said, thank you, mortgage brokers. Look at what you did. You facilitated the best loan debt profiles ever recorded in US history. And saying this as somebody whose family has been in banking since the late 1950s, the data always show this. So what occurs is that um, stock traders your favorite people. You know, my love for Your stock favorite traders. people to pick on, at least. Yes. The stock traders think that, well, it's an investment. It's not a home. And then I go, dude, did you sell your house? Uh, no. Then why do you think other people are going to sell their house? Uh, you, th- you, you should tell your wife and kids you're selling your house. No, they don't. Why? Because housing is the cost of shelter to your own capacity to own a debt. Being homeless, I, I still, I, I got to find out who convinced these people that being homeless was an option for college-educated Americans. That person deserves a, a gold prize for tricking people. You live in a house because it's shelter. That's it. What occurred was 10 years of people living in their homes, your total wages have increased over that period of time. Wages don't increase. Yes, they do, right? Again, Fanatical, extreme right-wing and left-wing people have convinced people that wages don't go. That has never been the case ever recorded post-World War II. It's not in the data, right? Wages rise every year. It's the cost of you know inflation. But all of a sudden, inflation took off, right? Historically different now. Guess what happened? Your mortgage debt payment didn't. So when people say your 30-year mortgage is a hedge against inflation, that's what they're talking about, Right. Because you, as an educated male or female living with your family, looking at your kids every morning, guess what? You're chill. You're having that coffee out there. Podcast stock traders on Twitter, YouTube. Oh, everybody's going to panic. Oh, they're going to run out and sell their house. Oh, no, 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 no. 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 Why? Americans aren't soft. This is, why, this is why I always say Americans aren't soft. There's one group of people that are always leveraged in their business and trading around. They are frantic. Right? Because their industry revolves around leverage and credit. That's why margin debt moves. This is a talking point I've had for many years. Margin debt moves with stocks up and down. Why? Because these cats are always on margin. right? So they naturally think everyone else must be like me. No, they're not. Podcast stock trader. No, no, no. Right? Americans are just normal people. They wake up in the morning and it's perfectly fine. So the hedge of what you were talking about, Sarah, it's like they're sitting here and they go, yeah, my, my total house cost is really low. So to, to, to get these people to financially do something that would not, I mean, just literally destroy their financials for no reason is the mindset of Twitter finance, of YouTube, of how stock traders look at how, and it's just not the case, right? So naturally, it can be a problem if inventory level keeps on falling down. So you get these people that go, oh, there's total housing units or population. These people just total active listing is all that matters. For 10 years, I've been told there's 15 million vacant. Nobody cares, right? It's active listings. Well, wait, let's talk about that. So the difference between all of those vacant homes or those those homes, supposedly those buildings, I don't know if you would call them homes versus active listings. The reason they're not active might be they're, you know, they need major renovations. They're not fit for habitation. Like, why do you well, think well, that's- Well, I mean, there's 144 million units in, in, in America. Those, there's, some of these are second homes, vacation homes. They're, they're homes that, that nobody wants to even live in. Whatever it is, they're not active listings. That's the thing. It's, 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 it's this paranoia 
Now, I'm assuming that these people know that they're lying, right? Because again, there's only one group of people that do this, and they have more in common with Russian trolls than they do American citizens. So they're constantly lying. Active listings is all that matters, right? So uh, a, a vacation home in the middle of Alaska, right, is just not a, a, a home for sale. It's just, it's such an easy concept, right? Homes for sale is what matters. Rental vacancies have been falling for years. And literally, people were telling us about these major deflationary collapses in America. And we had the biggest housing inflationary event ever. So we have to fix this, right? And it's not the builders are done building, man. They are done finished, right? Big talking point of mine for 10 years. The builders do not care about your belief on housing supply. They are not the March of Dimes. They're here to make money. So when demand goes down, they stop building. They have to. That's what a that's what a business person does. They don't purposely try to lose money. It's not like the cost to build something has gone down or productivity in construction is massive. This sector has been plagued by higher costs and the lack of productivity. Right? And guess what? We all finally paid the piper on this one in 2020, 2021, and, and in 2022 even because uh, we're still going to end the year with uh, total home price growth, but. Hopefully, we could get a traditional total active. And again, my whole low inventory theory goes out the door once we get back to 2019 supplies, which is still the four-decade low, but you have a functioning marketplace. Let's talk a little bit more, more about inflation when it comes to some of the construction supplies or things that affect housing. So, you know, I'd, you and I both follow a lot of lumber people on Twitter, and that's that's been interesting. But let's talk about some of the components and what we see inflationary or deflationary in, in the construction industry. There really isn't a deflationary construction story. And it's just the growth rate is slowing down, right? Um, so lumber prices went parabolic twice. I, you know, I, it's it's funny, on, on Twitter finance, I, I, I do these lumber charts so people could get perspective on lumber. If you look at lumber prices, they're basically the upper end range of what we had in the previous expansion. So even though lumber prices have fallen, it's not like, you know, there's major like deflationary things for, for how it still costs a lot of money to pay for labor, cost land, everything regulation. So there isn't the, the growth rate of costs can slow down, but there, there, there isn't like this major deflationary things are really cheap for uh, the builders here. Are we getting more though, you know, the supply chain issues, are we seeing more of those things uh, get better? They're going to get better. They're, they're, they have been getting it better, but they're probably also going to get worse next year. In, in some of the cases, I, I would imagine wind, windmill um, uh, pro- the production of making stuff for housing when housing demand goes down, slows down, even stops in some areas. And this is the problem. This is the secondary problem of having weaker demand is that production level starts to slow down and it's not easy just to ramp up again. So we've actually already lost this. Already, as the Fed doesn't realize it yet, but the production data is already falling. It's just we're thankfully we have this backlog that we have to finish. After that, it's over, right? If rates still stay high, the builders are done. They're not going to do. I mean, they're they're simply not here to build something to lose money. They have some margin capacity they could use to to make less. That's what they're working with now. Some of the uh, uh, not deflationary, but the growth rate of some of the costs are coming down. But it's just. Construction is plagued 
uh, uh, by not having a lot of productivity. You look at it, it's the worst sector we've had post-World War II in America, and that's why things are expensive. Where in other, other parts of the economy, it, it, it's not that expensive to make and build and sell. And, and here we're just stuck. And, and it, it, I mean, the cycle, in a sense, housing went into recession in June, and we see it in the permits and housing starts data. Uh, unless new home sales pick up again, uh, that trend keeps on going. And we are now like six months into the housing recession. You know, you start to really feel the pain, you know, as that, it's, that keeps on extending out and out and out and out. Because what occurs is jobs get lost, incomes get lost, people leave the industry, right? Uh, um, and uh, for now, the builders are able to hold the labor because they need they need to finish that backlog, which we don't want to see is that all the, you know, the Boise builder, the top builder in Boise laid off the, their construction workers. That's a different type of marketplace now, but, but it's just hard because we don't have that kind of labor force again. And if the builders lose construction workers, guess what? They have to start bidding to get them back. Cost goes up. So there's no, I mean, there's, there's some relief in there, but it's, it's just still expensive to build homes in America and the lack of productivity is is also a painful reality. When's the next time we get builder data? When does that come out? Uh, you know, we, we get the builder's confidence uh, index uh, soon and then the housing starts data comes out. So when you, when you think of housing data, builder confidence, housing starts, existing home sales, new home sales, typically toward the second half of the month. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll get that and again, the builder's confidence data is very efficient. I, I love that survey because it doesn't have political ideological kind of things to it. It's just basically, I'm here to make money and it's a lot harder. So it runs <laughs> really well. It runs efficiently well with uh, economic cycles and, and business cycles. You know, uh, uh, It doesn't have like an ideological stance to it. So uh, if waterfall collapse, you know, we, we, we tag the U.S. Uh, housing recession in June and literally the next two months uh, after that, the HMI builders' confidence in there will just collapse right after, right? So it looks it looks right. It looks to me there's going to be a point to where it rebounds, and as long as it rebounds with duration, okay, you got to change. And then what really front loads that is purchase application data. So uh, purchase application data is very good on forward looking. And again, thirty to ninety days. It's that people just don't apply and buy a house in seven days and it goes into the existing home sales number. No, it looks out months. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, it's something to think about in 2023. If rates keep on falling, right, rates falling, get back to 5%, stay there, right? It's, we're not talking about the two and a half to three and a half percent. The Fed doesn't have to worry about that marketplace anymore. I, under, I understand the concern by some people that say, listen, total inventory levels are still historically low. Right. So the Fed's worried about, you know, just reinflating. We are far from that marketplace. Right. Uh, because we've incurred a lot of housing price inflation and rates are still elevated. So to get that marketplace again, no, it's not it's not not here. If that does happen, we'll cross that bridge and have a discussion. But we're we're not there. So we have just a few more minutes. I wanted to remind our audience that you will be coming out with your 2023 forecast. You only do it once a year and it'll be in the first week of January, correct? Yes, yes. We're going to uh, bring it out. And again, my stuff is very detailed, right? And, you know, uh, for example, you know, the home price growth forecast for 2022 was wrong. My price growth was too low. 
Uh, but it's not just like, I see these, again, I, I'm telling you, man, people just love to say 10, 15, 20%. <laughs> they just throw it up on the wall never, and see what sticks. Like, oh, you know, it's safe. I mean, I mean, it's not 17, it's not 13, it's not 10, 15, 20, or 10, 15. I always like to read somebody's, if somebody tells me this, I want to see why. Um, I could tell you why I got uh, this wrong this year. Uh, number one, we accelerated early on in the year. Uh, we wrote this in October of 2021. What's the risk to housing is that if inventory channels break, we could accelerate in home prices again and people aren't ready for that. Guess what? That did happen. Uh, January, February were terrible. February was so bad that it deemed the housing market savagely unhealthy. We needed higher rates. March was even worse. The Fed did its pivot then, Russian invasion, everything changed. But 4 to 5% mortgage rates didn't do the damage I thought. What I was looking for was 18 to 22% year-over-year declines on a four-week moving average of purchase application data. That wasn't happening. We're just getting mid-single digits. That means the demand was not getting hit hard enough to get the price growth level to start to get back there. So similar to what we see in 2013 and 14, what we saw in 2018 and 19. You see, there's a model there. There's a correlation. There's a reason, right? It took like 6 to 7% rates. To, to get this to happen. So what challenges it, what changes this is mortgage rates matter to the other side as well, right? Uh, so I try to, I'm going to create like a very uh, innovative way to look at housing data in 2023, because again, not a normal situation. We're not dealing with normal things here. So we have to, forecasts have to be a little bit uh, normal. Again, I'm a bond market guy. I don't target mortgage rates. I never really talk about mortgage-backed securities. I just, the 10-year yield and Mortgage rates have moved hand in hand since 1971, four years before I've been born. Uh, so uh, we go with that where we think the bond market is going. And if the dollar is done going higher and the Fed is close enough to the end of the Fed rate hikes and the growth rate of inflation is falling and we threw everything at the 10-year yield, there's no QE anymore, there's nothing, the 10-year yield never broke out toward 8 to 10%, where a lot of people talk about that. They talk about 10% mortgages basis on that. The mortgage-backed security spreads are already massively wide, so there's room to the downside with a lot of the data. So we want to guide people like where we were, how we're looking at now, what to look for in the future, what are the risks. And in this kind of environment, it makes sense because let me tell you something, purchase application data stabilizing and bouncing off the lows, nobody was talking about that. Nobody is still talking about it in that way because I don't think people understand how to track this data line correctly. Logan, thank you so much for updating us on what's going on with inflation. We look forward to talking with you again this week. We look forward to some of those reports coming out and your analysis of that. Thanks for joining us. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more.
Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.